3: I told you yesterday that I would talk about the name, image, and likeness uh, aspect of the NCAA's decision. And also, I wanted to talk about the bigger picture of college athletics in general because I do believe it's a big story that deserves a lot of attention, both of those kind of intersecting simultaneously. Uh, so let me begin with this. The, one of the biggest questions that I have gotten is, ever since Rudy Gobert stepped off of the court was, hey, Clay, what do you think's going to happen with sports going forward? It's probably the number one question that I have gotten. It's probably the number one question most of you have wondered about in general. And of all the sports, the number one sport that I've been questioned about the most is football. And that's not going to surprise you because football dominates and people care more about football than they do anything else in this country Uh, in terms of viewership and so a lot of you out there would say right now hey if i could if i gave you an option if i said to you hey you can sign the uh you can sign away the nba season the major league baseball season uh the mls season and also the nhl season you'll sign away the paperwork on all of that if I guarantee you that college football and the NFL will both be back and every game will be played, I think a huge percentage of my audience right now that is listening to me would say, you know what, that is a trade that I would be happy to make. I I really do think that the vast majority of you would believe that. And one of the big questions associated with that has been, to the NFL's credit, on this show, I have praised the NFL to the high heavens for not changing their decision when it came to free agency. It was wildly popular. There were a lot. There was a lot of pressure on the league to change their decision when it came to free agency. They didn't do it, uh, and they made the right decision to keep going. And also, there was a large discussion uh, about whether or not the NFL draft should go on, and that happened, and it worked flawlessly, and it made a ton of decision as well. And uh, and I have said that it's important for the message to get out there uh, that the NFL plans on being back in the fall. And I think the NFL will be back in the fall. I'm a season ticket holder for uh, the Tennessee Titans in my hometown of Nashville where I live. And I believe that not only will the NFL be back, I think that NFL fans will be able to attend some NFL games this year. Because I think things are going to get a lot better in the summer. I think if you look at the direction we're going in terms of finding treatments for the coronavirus, I think there's a lot of reason for optimism and positivity that is out there in the public in general, okay? I believe that to be the truth beyond a shadow of a doubt. Um, Now, a lot of you have also said, well, what do you think, Clay, is going to happen as it pertains to the return of college football? And I haven't talked a lot about that, Uh, in general on this show because there's so many different moving parts other than to say in a general sense I believe college football will be played and I certainly believe college football will be played in the south you already got a bunch of southern states opening up Tennessee you got uh, you got Florida starting to open up on Monday you've got Georgia you've got Texas you've got Oklahoma and oh by the way We are going to talk with Oklahoma's governor later in this program, so I will talk directly with him, uh, and we will discuss this straight up. Like, what do you think is going to happen going forward? You're responsible for Oklahoma and Oklahoma State. Uh, All of that we will discuss. But the number of colleges that have come out and said, hey, we're going to be back in the fall is pretty seismic and let me explain and give you some of those schools because they're from a variety of the country right uh right now and these numbers are constantly changing uh right now here are the universities that i have seen announced that they are going to be back in the fall that they're planning on students being back on campus and being back enrolling alabama lsu georgia oregon purdue miami Iowa, Iowa State, Missouri, Washington State, Oklahoma, and Oklahoma State. Now, we're going to talk with the governor of Oklahoma later in the program, and I'll ask him specifically about the decision at Oklahoma and at Oklahoma State. I should say we're scheduled to talk to the governor of Oklahoma because. Crazy things can always happen, obviously, with politician schedules, but he is scheduled to join us right now in the program. And so uh, I will directly ask him about the decision at Oklahoma and Oklahoma State and how do you make that decision about uh, working with those universities, whether they're going to come back. All of those schools are sending an important message that they believe students need to be back on campus in the fall. And I believe that's true for both college kids And also for elementary school kids. And people say, okay, what do you think? I think the best way you can demonstrate what you really think is by your own lifestyle decisions. Let me explain what I mean. I believe that I have three kids. Like many of you out there who have children, or certainly if you have grandchildren as well, the most important thing in my life is my three boys. I have a 12-year-old, I have a 9-year-old, and I have a 5-year-old. I got a kid who didn't have to finish 6th grade, I got a kid who didn't have to finish 3rd grade, and I got a pre-K. So next year, I will have a 7th grader, I will have a 4th grader, and I will have a kindergartner. I believe all three of those boys who I love more than anything in the world and who matter to me more than anything in the world, I believe all three of them should be back in school if they were college kids, I would believe they should go back to wherever college campus they are attending and they should be in school for the fall on their college campus. So you say, what is the basis by which you make that decision? It's a good question. It's a fair question. The data reflects that college kids are more likely, and elementary school kids and your infants, all of those groups are more likely to die of the flu than they are to die of the coronavirus. This is incontrovertible fact. If you are 22 or younger, you are statistically more likely to die from the flu than you are to die from the coronavirus. That is not true for all ages. Okay, That is statistically 100% true for people who are 22 years or younger. Almost none of them are remotely impacted by the coronavirus in any way. We need to get them back in school. And as part of getting those kids back in school, when colleges open back up, we also need all the kids who are playing college football to be back in school. We need them to be playing as well. Now, the challenge for colleges, and I got to give credit to Mitch Daniels, who's a former governor from the state of Indiana, who is now the president of Purdue University, In Indiana. He was the first person who I saw as a president of a university to actually step out there and say this publicly. One of the things that scares me about our society today, maybe scares me more than anything, certainly scares me more than the coronavirus, is if facts make people uncomfortable, there's lots of people who won't say them. This is a big deal, right? As we talk about the return of sports, it is a fact that young, healthy people are in virtually no danger from the coronavirus. That is 100% incontrovertible fact. If you are in your 20s or your teens and you are listening to me right now, you physically, yourself, are in virtually no danger of dying of the coronavirus. Now, that doesn't mean that there might not be a teenager or a 20-something or somebody who's in their young 30s that dies of the coronavirus, right? I can tell you right now, hey, the most dangerous part of your trip is very frequently the drive to the airport. The odds of you being on a commercial jetliner and it crashing are virtually zero, doesn't mean it's not going to happen, right? There will be a commercial jetliner that goes down at some point in the next decade, and a lot of people will die on it. Some of those people will have said, Oh man, I never, I knew I never should have gone on an airplane before. But the statistical probability of that happening is nearly zero. We got airplanes even now with the way the economy is shut down. We got airplanes taken off all over the country, flying everywhere. The chances of your plane going down are almost zero. Similarly, the chances of you dying of the coronavirus are almost zero. Doesn't mean they're zero, right? People will die at young ages of the coronavirus. Statistically, it will be almost zero percent. It's not going to be zero percent. But there is risk to everything that we do in life. And we have never, to my knowledge, shut down a university in my life, certainly not in recent history, because some people might die of the flu. And there are way more people who are going to die of the flu that are college age every year than so far have died of the coronavirus. So the safest thing for the country, honestly is for college football to come back and also for all of those college kids out there to be on campus spreading the coronavirus among each other. We need for herd immunity to start to happen and the best way for herd immunity to happen is for people who have almost zero risk of serious health consequences to be passing this virus around amongst themselves and this is the next step beyond what Mitch Daniels said, we can't stop a virus from spreading. It's almost impossible. The way that you stop coronavirus and get sports back is by one of two things. Either we find a vaccine, and everybody can be vaccinated across the entire country, and that means that nobody is able to get this virus, right? The vaccine, remember, doesn't mean the virus doesn't exist. It just means you can't get it because you've already been exposed to it and because you already have the vaccine. We have measles, mumps, rubella, chickenpox vaccines. Remember, this is significant. It doesn't mean that the virus doesn't exist. Certainly, the virus still exists in some ways. This is why vaccination is so important. But in general... Those viruses don't spread because people have been vaccinated against them, right? So if you're vaccinated against the coronavirus, it doesn't mean that the coronavirus is not still going to exist, that COVID-19 is not still going to exist. It just means it won't spread, right? That's one way you can stop it. And it might take a year or more. We don't know how long it's going to take to actually have a virus that's able uh, to be beaten by a vaccine. The other way you beat the coronavirus and this is what sweden is discussing is you beat it by herd immunity what is herd immunity that is when a significant enough portion of the population already has the antibodies to the virus because they've already had it such that it doesn't spread anymore and people talk now about oh we got to be concerned about the second wave If we end the lockdown and people go back out and go back to work and, oh my God, what are you going to do when the outbreak happens on a college campus? I think it's actually a good thing. If the outbreak happens on a college campus, we want outbreaks to happen in our young, healthy community as opposed to in nursing homes where people are old and unhealthy and where the outbreak can end up killing people. We need and want this outbreak to spread among young, healthy populations. Now, colleges are going to have to come up with policies to protect older professors or janitors or health workers uh, on the campus who are older and more susceptible to the virus. But for 18 to 22-year-olds, the best thing they can do is actually not be sheltered. It's to be able to go out in public and spend their time circulating, keeping the economy rolling, going and learning at school because a huge percentage of those kids who get this would be asymptomatic, but they would mostly be surrounded by other kids of their own age, meaning this virus would burn out really, really quickly among college campuses, right? It would spread, if this is as contagious as we seem to think, rapidly through dorms and through college classrooms, and through college facilities. But the vast majority of people who get it would be young and healthy, and therefore there would be nothing to fear. Within a month, most colleges, or six weeks, most colleges would have herd immunity, which would be the best thing that could possibly happen to our country, because the millions of college kids that get this, and or have already had it, by the way, would help us to stop the spread of the virus going forward. All of this is why it's integral that we have kids back on a college campus and return to a sense of normalcy, and that then leads to college football coming back too. Now, what would college football look like? I can make an argument for you that college football and college scientists, if they're looking at the data – would say, hey, we can have crowds on the college campus, but no one under the age of 40 or 45 or maybe 50 is allowed to attend a college football game this fall. And some of you are like, wow, that's a crazy idea. And I'm thinking to myself, well, the data, if you look at it, reflects that if you are under the age of 50 and otherwise healthy, you have almost nothing to fear from the coronavirus in terms of hospitalization, in terms of death. Now, again, I'm not saying that if you know a 46-year-old, he or she might not die from the coronavirus. I'm not saying that a 18-year-old or a 28-year-old might not die of the coronavirus either. What I'm telling you is they are statistical anomalies. They are outliers. They are not representative of the larger population. And I'm also saying, hey, if you are a college kid... And you have immune system issues, or if you are really unhealthy, you shouldn't be back on a college campus. Colleges should also allow kids who feel like they aren't able or willing or it's not smart for them to be on a college campus, they should also allow them to remotely be able to sit back and watch their classes remotely like a lot of kids have finished their spring semesters doing. But we got to get the average, the normal, the young and the healthy 18 to 22-year-olds back on campus, and I hope we're going to be able to play college football as well if we follow maybe a guideline of either not having fans present or if we're going to have fans present, put in an age restriction in terms of who's allowed to enter into the stadium. And maybe we also say, hey – only a third of the seats in a stadium are able to be occupied. Heck, maybe we say only college kids can go to games. Ostensibly, the reason why the college and university exist there is to allow um, college kids to be student-athletes and be able to watch their fellow student-athletes. Maybe the answer is only college kids are allowed to go to these games. Maybe you have to have a student ID in the fall to be able to get on the college campus, and we're trying to create a bubble surrounding those college campuses, so those 18 to 22 year olds are the only ones who uh, who are able to uh, to get uh, to, to get into the games. And maybe you allow those college kids to spread out in the stadiums, so that you know there're 15 or 20 thousand college kids there, and maybe you allow them to spread out in the stadium so that there is more flexibility there i don't know what the answer is going to be we have a lot of summer to get through to see what the data shows us now but i've seen enough data to know that college kids need to be back on campuses and that it makes complete sense now i told you i was going to talk about name image and likeness and i will do that in the next uh, segment here coming up at the top of uh, the next hour. We'll do that maybe at the top of hour two. I'll talk about name, image, and likeness. This is Outkick, the coverage with Clay Travis.
2: rack.com sports the way tire buying should be
3: one of the interesting storylines that we've been following certainly on this show for a while is all of the different quarterbacks that are out there that were looking for homes that aren't necessarily uh bad quarterbacks that have won games at the uh at the nfl level maybe even have won a Super Bowl or played in a Super Bowl in the case of Joe Flacco and Cam Newton. And I would classify there being right now five guys out here that are in the backup role and either have a job or may have a job before all is said and done. And I was thinking maybe I could rank these guys in terms of the likelihood. And, you know, by the way, this might turn into a whole hour of the show as we continue to roll in May and uh, and there aren't uh, a ton of stories that are out there. But you think about this. Marcus Mariota has signed with the Oakland Raiders, right? In theory, he could be able to uh, to play going forward uh, if he replaces Derek Carr. Jameis Winston has now signed with the New Orleans Saints. We know that Cam Newton is an unrestricted free agent. We know that Andy Dalton is available, And we know that Joe Flacco is available, right? Like these are five guys out there that all potentially could start a game in 2020 and it wouldn't be crazy, right? Uh, By which I mean, uh, they aren't necessarily expected to start anywhere right now, but if they start a game in 2020, it wouldn't blow your mind that that would occur. Which one is most likely to win a game or multiple games in 2020? as you rank them. Joe Flacco has won a Super Bowl. Cam Newton has played in a Super Bowl and won an MVP. Andy Dalton played in a decent amount of playoff games. Marcus Mariota has won a playoff game. Jameis Winston never played in the playoffs before. Ranking them one to five, who's most likely to be starting at the end of the 2020 season, let's say? How would you assess these guys one to five in terms of who's most likely to be starting at the end of the year? I'm going to go with Andy Dalton one. Okay? I think that Andy Dalton, wherever he ends up, it's kind of a a questionable move, right? I'm going to call an audible. I'm going to call an audible on my live list. I'm going to go with Marcus Mariota one. Because I think there's enough discomfort right now with uh, the situation at uh, at Oakland that I think Marcus Mariota is the most likely to be starting at the end of the year. I think Andy Dalton is the second most likely. I could really flip-flop those, but I'm going to go with Mariota over Andy Dalton. In the third spot, I'm going to go with Cam. Because I think at some point, Cam will start a game in 2020. I think that in the four spot, I'll go Jameis. Because obviously, if Drew Brees gets started, the qu- gets injured, the question would be, who are they going to start? And I think they might have to start Taysom Hill because they're paying him $16 million. Although, who knows exactly whether Jameis might be the guy there. And then I'll go with Flacco in the sixth position. And by the way, I also could have included Nick Foles. And if I include Nick Foles, I bump him all the way up to number one on the list because I think he might win the outright uh, job over Mitch Trubisky before all is said and done. Point here is, there are a lot of guys out there. A lot of times we talk about in the NFL, hey, there aren't enough quarterbacks for the jobs that are available. I feel like right now, there are way more quarterbacks then there are jobs available for those guys. So as you break down this scenario looking forward, uh, to me, this is really kind of fascinating to think about. Are there going to even be enough jobs for all these guys? Because I do think Cam and Flacco, for instance, could find themselves on the outside looking in, maybe even having to wait till there's an injury to find a gig. And obviously Cam's injury situation factors in here in a big way himself, because teams don't want to risk anything on him until they can actually do the uh, the work themselves. Well, this is going to turn into, I think, a big debate and a big topic, because if your quarterback, whoever he is, doesn't start off really strong, then there are going to, or he gets injured or he gets dinged up a little bit, there are going to be a lot of sort of bullpen quarterback pitchers here who are able to come in and potentially take over, and all of them. Are going to be looking to be next year's version of either Ryan Tannehill or Teddy Bridgewater, guys who began the season as backups and made themselves a ton of money. Because Teddy Bridgewater, twenty million a year, uh, sixty million overall. Looks like Ryan Tannehill, ninety-one million, basically overall. There's a lot of money to still be made, even as a backup in the NFL, if you can resurrect your career. And there are a lot of guys on this list that are hoping to do that for sure. This is Outkick, the coverage with Clay Travis.
2: trust of 40% repeat customers they give you the tools you need to save and grow your money with reliable returns and take charge of your financial future it's a better way to invest because it's investing your way so change the game get started today with as little as a thousand dollars at gamebridge.io
0: whether it's your first time betting or you've been gambling for years have a plan and know the game be aware of the rules and odds before you gamble.
3: excited to welcome in now uh, the governor of Oklahoma Kevin Stitt and governor we're gonna get into a couple of different interesting issues uh, as it pertains to the intersection of sports and uh, and the state of Oklahoma for sure but I want to start with you were in attendance when uh, when Rudy Gobert tested positive and Oklahoma City the game against uh, the jazz it just shut down there in Oklahoma City what was your experience like on that evening? I don't know that I've heard anything at all about it from uh, the governor' perspective at all. What was that evening like? Tell me the story.
1: Well, it was uh, it was really interesting. I went over there. I took my ten year old son with me. He brought his sharpie and a basketball, and he was wanting to get some autographs. And we went to uh, we were meeting with a company in Oklahoma that was expanding, so it was kind of a commerce trip. And uh, we were there in the, kind of the restaurant area at the Jazz, or, or excuse me, at the uh, Thunder where we play, and the Jazz had showed up, and it was about 7.50 for a, a was it 7.50 or 6.50? 650. 6.50. for a 7 o'clock game. And I got a call from my Department of Health. This was early on, March 11th, and they just told me, they said, hey, Governor, we just found out. Uh, we tested one of the Jazz players. They were positive. I said, who knows? And they said, you're the first one. Nobody knows. So, that's when I uh, I went and uh, <clears throat> I went and got Clay Bennett. We went to a conference room. I told him the news. Uh, we got uh, the commissioner, the NBA commissioner on the phone, and uh, we sent the players back to the locker room. And, I mean, it was literally, I, I think they had sang the national anthem. that warm-ups were done. Everything was ready to go. And uh, we kind of caucused there with the NBA. And, and uh, we knew um, at that point that the, the, the players had been around each other. And so just out of an abundance of caution – uh, we went ahead and uh, postponed that game and called that game. And then um, so that's kind of that's kind of how it went down. It was a, it was a crazy, uh, crazy day. Uh, and then we were walking through the, the bottom of the stadium there. And uh, my my 10 year old son turned to Mr. Bennett, the owner of the Thunder and said, am I going to be able to get an autograph? <laughs> and Clay, Bennett, Clay said, uh, Remington, I'm going to get you all the autographs you want. Son. It was pretty funny.
3: So let, let me just kind of go back into that story, because that's an incredible story. And I, I don't know if you even told that story uh, hardly, or at least I haven't heard it in the in the national media. So when you get that news, your immediate thought is what? Because, I mean, that's like an earth shattering thing. You happen to be at the Oklahoma City Thunder game as the governor of the state of Oklahoma. We're in the early days of the coronavirus outbreak. No athlete. I mean, th- this this thing rocked the, uh, the entire nation in a big way. And your immediate thought is what when they come and tell you, hey, Rudy Gobert has tested positive? Because hardly
1: anybody knows at that point. Yeah, I mean, it was, a, it was a gut punch. I was I remember I was standing in the restaurant. I got a phone call. I stepped away from my meeting because it was my Department of Health. And, of course, we were in regular contact. And I'm like, oh, man, this is going to be bad news. And so he called me and just said, Governor, he said, uh, we just found out that the, a Utah Jazz player tested positive. He got sick when he was here. He went to uh, our OU Health Science Center. We tested him. We just got the results back, and I was just kind of, you know, stunned. And so uh, we knew we needed to uh, – I needed to get with uh, the ownership of the funder, and we needed to make a decision pretty quickly. Uh, I didn't know how much exposure he had had to the other players, but I knew they had traveled together. And so once we got all the facts, we got on the phone with the NBA commissioner. So it was, yeah, it was a really surreal moment. And then, you know, 15 minutes after we called that game – uh, then the NBA canceled for the season and then all the other sporting events uh, ended up canceling. So kind of a surreal deal. But of course, uh, you know, Mr. Bennett was concerned about his, his uh, uh, players and we were concerned about the fans. And and then we were all talking about how do we uh, not panic the crowd as we, as we release. And so we just, uh, uh, we didn't break until the, the next day, but we just said, hey, uh, we just had the, the the announcer state that due to unforeseen circumstances, we're going to postpone this game, and you know, please leave orderly, and and uh, so that's kind of how it went down, and and uh, it is kind of a part of history, I think, because uh, this is just a it's I think it's a watershed moment for all of us in the U.S. We were dealing with something that we nobody knew exactly how it was affecting or how it was transmitted at that time or how infectious it was, and and so out of an abundance of caution, I think we made the right decision that that night.
2: I think
3: you dice definitely made the the right decision, Governor. Now Rudy Gobert was never at the arena. Is that is that what I understand to be true?
1: That's right. We had him. He was sequestered over at his hotel room, or we waiting on the results of the test. And then as soon as we found out, uh, we sent our Department of Health up to test all of the players. So we went in and tested all the Utah Jazz players. And um, uh, this is kind of an interesting fact. Their ownership was so was so appreciative. They sent a check back to our state, our health department. Uh, to cover the cost of those tests, because we immediately went in that night at 10 o'clock and tested all their players before they got on the flights and uh, went back to Utah.
3: Now, uh, you said you talked with Adam Silver. I mean, that, that again, this is going to be, I think, an incredible documentary one day, and I think this will be kind of the moment where they start to trace everything uh, in terms of the fallout in the world of sports. What was Adam Silver's reaction like as the commissioner of the NBA, did it seem as if he might have anticipated a story like this happening, or was he kind of shocked in your, in your estimation?
1: You know, in our, my estimation, he was, he was shocked because he was telling Clay, you know, really it's a state health department. And uh, Mr. Bennett, Clay was like, well, I've got the governor right here with me. So we were kind of caucusing. And I don't think the NBA at that point had made a decision or what they were going to do. And, and so to me, it, it was a shock. It was uh uh, man, this is our worst fear. We, we, we had no idea this guy was here, but well, we were a little upset if he was, the player was, I think, uh, maybe showing some symptoms. Why would he fly to Oklahoma city? Right. Uh, but you know, we can play Monday morning quarterback. Uh, we, we just didn't know at that time what was happening. And, and, um, um, but we made the right decision. And I think that, that, uh, the NBA did as well. And, and, uh, but good news is o- Americans, Oklahomans, have really started to flatten this curve, and we've done a really good job. And now we're, we're talking about our measured reopening plan, which we're excited about.
3: Yeah. Let's talk about that in a second before we get into specifically what you're going to be doing at Oklahoma. And we're talking to the governor of Oklahoma, uh, Kevin Stitt, who was at that game between, uh, the Jazz and uh, the Thunder when really kind of the intersection of sports and the coronavirus blew up in a big way. Uh, I believe the presidents of the university at Oklahoma and Oklahoma State have both said that they plan on opening for the fall. And I know you're starting to open up the state of Oklahoma today uh, with people being able to go back out. And I'll get into what people in Oklahoma can do and what you're seeing on the ground in your state but a lot of people out there who listen to me are really focused on the return of college athletics. They got kids, and they want to know if they're going to be able to go back to college. With what you're seeing on the ground in Oklahoma, how important is it to get kids back on campus at Oklahoma and Oklahoma State?
1: Well, we're we're seeing some really positive trends here in Oklahoma. You know, you got to remember, why did we shut down in the first place? Why did I issue 15 executive orders? It was really to flatten the curve, and protect our healthcare workers and our hospital systems. Uh, Because in early March, some of those modelers were showing, hey, we were gonna have 5,000 hospitalizations. Uh, So we've done a great job. So right now, the stats are, we have 291 people in the hospital across the state of Oklahoma uh, being treated for COVID. We have 4,600 hospital beds. So we have built up our PPE supply so now it's time for a measured reopening. And we think, you know, that college experience is so important for young people. Uh, we think the education experience, the online has, has been, has been uh, good, but uh, we, we do think that there is some interaction and some things that uh, uh, you miss by not being there on college campus. So we're excited to get our young people back into school, not only in higher ed, but also uh, I've been meeting with the superintendent of uh, our common education system, and we're wanting to get them back going in the fall as well.
3: And I said this yesterday on the show. I have a 12, a 9, and a 5-year-old, and I 100%, based on looking at the data, want them back in school in August uh, when schools open back up in Nashville, Tennessee, where I live. You have six kids. So I imagine as a governor, you're also a dad. So it's not as if you're looking at this completely without the perspective of what a parent would have. You want, I imagine, as you're opening back up the state, your kids to be back in school as soon as they can as well.
1: Yeah, oh, absolutely. My, my wife is, uh, uh, pulling her hair out, trying to wrangle. We've got five kids, uh, at home and then our oldest daughter, she's a freshman in college. So she's back at home now. And, and so trying to uh, get all the kids lined up with zoom calls and all that with their classes and all the classrooms. And, um, my wife is like, this is exactly why I don't homeschool. And, uh, it's pretty- <laughs> yeah,
3: your, your wife and a lot of dads and moms out there across the whole country are saying that, including this one.
1: Yes. And, and yesterday I, I, I popped in on my, uh, third grader and he was, uh, you know, said hi to his zoom class. So that was pretty neat, uh, uh, saying hi to all of his, all of his, uh, class, but yeah, we're going through it just like all the other parents around America are. So what is the, so when you decide to open back up a state,
3: obviously a big decision, one of the biggest decisions that a governor can have, uh, and the great thing about the United States policy of federalism is every state and every governor uh, gets to look at what's actually taking place inside of his borders or her borders to figure out what makes the most sense. Um, how do you decide that? What is the data that you're looking at? And what is it going to look like going forward? Say when restaurants open back up in Oklahoma today, what do you expect them to look like?
1: Yeah. Well, well first off, we, we have always, from the very beginning, I've said, I'm going to make decisions based on the data that's happening in Oklahoma, not what we're seeing on television, not what we're seeing happening in other states. And I was one of nine states that did not issue a stay at home order um, because we issued a safer at home for our elderly, most vulnerable population. Because when you look at our data, 80 percent of our deaths in Oklahoma have been over the age of 65. Yep. We've only had five deaths under our median age in Oklahoma, which is 38 years old. 11 deaths under the age of 50, and 80% of our deaths have also had comorbidities. So, in other words, they had other underlying health issues. So, really, that most vulnerable is who we were trying to protect. Uh, But we've been looking at the scientific data in Oklahoma for the decisions from the very beginning and not getting pressure uh, from what we're seeing on television or what we're seeing in other states. But, yes, it's a very uh, difficult decision. And so that's why we're doing this in phases. We watched the, we, we've uh, met all four of the White House gates on reopening. And we think it's time to do a measured uh, reopening, which starts, it started actually last Friday within some select cities. We did some appointment onlys. And then this Friday, we have uh, restaurants opening up across the state in a very, uh, you know, structured, limited. Uh, guidance with separation of tables and and, uh, menus that are disposable and condiments and and extra sanitation and masking of the workers and all that. But uh, we're going to be watching the data. And if anything happens, we reserve the right to extend the phase two out uh, further or even back up a little bit on on what we're doing and what we're seeing based on the numbers in Oklahoma.
3: So you're on, obviously, a a nationwide sports uh, talk show. We've been talking a lot about sports. But a lot of different governors have been weighing in you have the oklahoma city thunder in uh, in your state obviously you also have a huge oklahoma and oklahoma state fan base for college sports how important is the return of sports to a sense of normalcy not only
1: in your state but in the country so far as you see it well i I think it's huge i mean i'm a huge college football fan Uh, we don't have any pro football in oklahoma Uh, So we, we love the Sooners. We love the Cowboys. I went to Oklahoma state. And so just this normalcy in the fall, you can't hardly imagine, you know, life without college football, at least for, you know, college football uh, fans. So it's just part of our, part of our fall ritual here in Oklahoma, for sure. So we're looking forward to getting back to that normalcy and uh, I'm sure other, other college football fans and, and uh, uh, colleges around the, around the country are looking forward to that too. But, and from, from an economic standpoint, you know, the, the uh, college football is a huge economic driver for most of the of the state schools and universities.
3: Uh, certainly in Norman and in Stillwater, I, there's probably a lot of people out there who's listening to us. Everybody is huge fan of a favorite college football team. What's it like to be the governor of a state? When I'm assuming, if you went to Oklahoma State, you are an Oklahoma State Cowboy fan but now you're representing the whole state. Well, that's got to be kind of an interesting <laughs> fain, interesting perspective just from a sports fan perspective to be in charge of representing your rival as well.
1: Yeah, it, it, it is. You know, the, the interesting thing is I grew up in Norman. So I grew yeah. up in uh, Norman as an OU fan, and, and then I went to Stillwater for college. And so, yes, I'm a huge Oklahoma State fan. And when you become governor, you're you're uh, a little more neutral. And uh, so I love both love both schools, but I get harassed a little bit from my Oklahoma State uh, college friends calling me a traitor when they see me on the sidelines of the OU games. <laughs> and, and then the the OU fans, uh, you know, harass me a little bit because I went to Oklahoma State. So it's it's a lot of fun. And and I'll tell you. Um, we enjoy Bedlam, which is what we call the OU-OSU game here. Um, and then I love going to the OU-Texas game and met Governor Abbott. So we flipped the coin at the 50-yard line for the Red River rivalry last year. And so um, we're just huge college football fans here in Oklahoma.
3: Well, I don't know the answer to this, and I imagine a lot of people are curious. What kind of role would the governor of Oklahoma have in terms of making, helping to make a decision about whether Oklahoma and Oklahoma state football come back. I mean, is that something where you're on a call with the big 12? You may not even know because I don't imagine there's a lot of precedent in these situations, but how much of an impact or a, uh, influence do you believe you'll have on the decision of whether college football is played, which I know all of our audience hopes and anticipates it will be how much of an impact do you think you'll have in those decisions?
1: Well, as far as uh, the influence from, from the University of Oklahoma and Oklahoma State and our higher regents, uh, yes, we're on the phone with, uh, with those folks. And, uh, um, you know, obviously we want to look at the data and we're going to be safe. But as far as the Big 12 and the NCAA, uh, not much from my perspective. So the influence that I would have would, would be just with the presidents of both OU and OSU and then our chancellor of higher education.
3: Uh, this has been outstanding. I know you're a busy man, got a lot going on in the state. Congratulations on starting to open back up, and also your numbers in Oklahoma. As you said, the hospitalization numbers very low. And hey, man, looking forward to being able to watch Bedlam this fall. Fingers crossed, all that's going to keep uh, happening. And thanks for all the work. That is Governor Kevin Stitt from Oklahoma. Thanks, my man.
1: Hey, thank you so much.
2: trust of 40% repeat customers they give you the tools you need to save and grow your money with reliable returns and take charge of your financial future it's a better way to invest because it's investing your way so change the game get started today with as little as a thousand dollars at gamebridge.io
0: whether it's your first time betting or you've been gambling for years have a plan and know the game be aware of the rules and odds before you gamble.
3: Certainly, one place where people could be having a good Friday is if you're in the college athletics business and you are a top recruit and you're around 16 years old right now. Uh, because as a result of the NCAA embracing the new policy as it ter- uh, determines for name, image, and likeness, there are theoretically going to be uh, players who are able to make money off their name, image, and likeness in college now. Uh, now, I think it's going to be utterly fascinating. Uh, to see what the market actually is for college players. Because my general consensus is there's only five or six guys on most campuses that have much of a value when it comes to name, image, and likeness. I could be wrong about this. Uh, But I think the general rule is going to be, hey, if people know you, you're the quarterback, if you are a point guard, if you're a star player on the basketball team, it's almost all going to be football players or basketball players, right? I don't think anybody would really argue there. Uh, Maybe some women's basketball players will get a little something. But by and large, it's going to be a name, image, and likeness that benefits football players and men's basketball players. And it's not going to be everybody, right? It's not going to be every basketball player that has a value because most of them, frankly, aren't that well-known. And it's not going to be every football player because, again, most of them are not well-known. But the general consensus has been that the overall benefit is going to uh, be towards the overall top programs. And I kind of would push back against this. And let me explain why. This is a little bit of a counterintuitive idea for why I believe that that general consensus opinion might possibly be wrong. Let me explain why. I think right now, if you are a college kid and you have offers from top programs in the country, you go to a top program. In other words, let's pretend you're in the state of Michigan. You're not choosing to go to eastern Michigan or western Michigan over the University of Michigan to play basketball or football. There's 0% chance, unless your dad or something is the coach, that you would make that decision. If you are in California, and I know this is going to pain Eddie Garcia because he is a Fresno State fan, but if you're in California, you're typically not going to pick Fresno State or San Diego State over USC or UCLA. You're just not going to do it, right? Typically. Same thing if you are in Florida, you're not going to choose to go to Lane Kiffin's old school of FAU or to FIU over the University of Miami. And you're not going to choose, by and large, Central Florida over Florida. Like, right, those are decisions, or South Florida over Florida State. Those are decisions that are not usually made, all right? I'm skipping around the country To give you a geographic sense, it's true in Florida, it's true in Michigan, it's true in California, same thing in Texas, right? You're not typically picking even a big school like Texas Tech or Houston, which are obviously they've had good success over the University of Texas, probably, right? Okay, that's true. I think almost all of you are nodding your heads and you're saying, yeah, you know what? You're going to go to the bigger school. How might things change, however, if you're not the top recruit in any of those classes. Let's pretend that you're getting the signing at Michigan and Michigan signing 25 guys. And let's say you're uh, at the University of Texas, you're the 20th or 22nd guy in that class of 25 at Michigan, at, at Texas, at USC, at, uh, at Florida. Might it make more sense for you to be the top target of a lesser school. In other words, what if you're interested in staying home and going to the University of Houston, and the University of Houston has got a big booster who owns a car dealership, he might be willing to give you more to go to the University of Houston than Texas might be willing to give you as the 20th best player in their recruiting class. You're a four-star for Texas, let's say, or a high three star you're a good player not a great player you're a big time recruit for the University of Houston or for Central Florida or for Fresno State is it possible that those schools actually might have a much better chance to compete on name image and likeness than the schools that are already popular I think the answer might well be yes And I think it's a counterintuitive way to think about it. But if you think, I don't know what city you're all in, obviously, you're listening in all 50 states. But let's say, let's go to Southern Miss. Let's pretend that you are a kid from near Southern Miss's campus. And you are a four-star kid that can go to Alabama or Auburn. But Alabama and Auburn aren't ecstatic about you. It's not like you're a five-star. You're not the peak of their class. Is it possible that a car dealer in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, might give you more to stay home and go to Ole Miss, uh, sorry, to go to Southern Miss, than you would get to go to Ole Miss or to go to Alabama or Auburn? I think that's not just possible. I think it's even likely. So, name, image, or likeness, a lot of people are saying, oh, this is just going to make the rich richer. I think there's actually an argument that this might allow some some competition from a lower-level school because you might be willing to take $75,000 to go to Southern Miss if you're just getting a scholarship to go to Alabama. Right? I mean, that seems logical. You might go to Fresno State over USC if it comes with hundred grand because there's a booster who really wants you to stay and go at Fresno State. You might go to Central Florida over the University of Florida If somebody who's a big fan of Central Florida has the money to persuade you to stay there. I want you guys to think flexibly about this. I think it could be very, very much true. All right? Uh, I want you guys to, uh, to break that down. I want you to think about it as we roll into the program. Up next, we've made a bunch of new hires at OutKick. I'm very excited about them. Uh, one of them is Ryan Glasspiegel, who's going to be writing and is already writing at OutKick. You can go check out what he writes at OutKick.com. You won't miss anything at all from his writing if you go follow him at Sports Report or if you just check out OutKick every day, you'll see everything that we're putting up there. Uh, and he's going to be great. We're going to talk about a lot of different stories, including the Michael Jordan documentary, What Does It Do for Jordan's Legacy? What in the World's Going to Happen with Dan Levitard as he's feuding with his ESPN bosses? And... How does all of this controversy shake out in terms of potential refunds to uh, cable subscribers over games not going on?
2: We'll talk about that next.